HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I'm Erica Wise, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on the Heritage Radio Network. And just wanted to remind our listeners that HeritageRadioNetwork.org is a member-supported network. So please click into our website and look at all the programming and perhaps make a donation. We would really appreciate it. You know, if you are listening in real time or if you're listening within this next week or so of the podcast you can listen anytime you want fine with me but we are winding down summer and the air is full of the smell of clean notebooks and crisp binders and sharpened number two pencils all lined up in their cases for a little while at least indeed it's back to school time and I thought it would be appropriate to present a program that was, not that my programs aren't all academic, but perhaps a little more academic, and we'll start the season off with a textbook. The author of the textbook and my guest is Ken Albala, and Ken is a food historian and professor of history at the the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. He is the author and or editor of I don't even want to count how many books, uh, over 20 books at this point. Um, Everything from Eating Right in the Renaissance to The Lost Art of Real Cooking. His most recent book is The Food History Reader, Primary Sources. And, you know, on this show, I think the comments that I receive most after um, my shows are from listeners who say, Gee, you know, you mentioned some text or some old book or some something you used for a resource. Could you give me the name of that book? And often I can't remember. I'll have to listen again. But 
I think that that is something of interest to anyone who involves themselves in food history or culinary history. And to my great pleasure, and I hope to many of our listeners, the food history reader really is it's like a primer uh, for anyone interested in food history. And Ken also has um, a 36-episode course. It's on, available on DVD, which I think is fabulous, and that's on um, a cultural culinary history. He also is the director of the new Food Studies graduate program at the Pacific's San Francisco campus. Ken has a blog, the Ken Obala Food Rant, and he's given TEDx talks. I'm so glad you've taken the time to be with me today, Ken. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Good morning. So tell me a little bit. I know um, that you must run into the same thing that I do just giving these talks, but as, a, as a, uh, an instructor and professor, people asking you, well, what do I read? How do I become a food historian? What do I study? Tell me a little bit about why you chose to do this book. Well, this book has actually been many years in the making. Um, oddly enough, when I first started teaching food history, which has got to be about 15 years ago, um, I did a small seminar and thought we need to read the primary sources. And so I collected as many as I could and back in those days Xeroxed them off for my whole class. And um, and I thought back then that it would make a great book and um, as an anthology of food history sources and tried to shop it around. And as you probably know, food history was not quite where it is today. It was, right. it was not illegitimate, but it wasn't, didn't quite have the status in academia as it does now, um, and certainly not when I started 20 years ago. And I really couldn't sell it. I mean, I sold, sold you know, sent proposals to, I don't know, maybe a dozen different publishers, and they all said, who's going to buy this? How many food history courses can there be in the world, you know, for that we need a reader like this? And so I put it in the shelf and basically forgot about it and began teaching the same food history course as a large lecture basically for um, you know general education credit and um, food, similar food history courses started popping up here and there and and eventually I thought you know I really need a reader for this class um, I also teach at Boston in their um, graduate program and I thought for, for an MA program we definitely need to be reading the primary sources and I think the whole field kind of ripened and um, there now is a market for it it's, it's doing very well um, it's not exactly the same reader I started with it's, it's a lot more global in scope now now, so there's sections on China and India and places like that, but um, but it, I think the uh, you know food history kind of matured and is ripe for a good reader now. Um, well, indeed, the, the um, food history indeed has matured, and this book, I, I have to say, you're right, it does it spans the globe. But not only does it span the globe, it spans a time period from classic antiquity to the pre- all the way to the present, and um, it really it illustrates. I, I think of it more as culinary history. That's that great divide. I know I, we should erase that line between culinary history and food history, but it really illustrates the ways that that um, social structure, you know, religion, politics, uh, health, everything played into what people ate and how they thought about food and how food evolved. Uh, I, That's absolutely right. Yeah, I, I mean, I I think. Um, I think the divide between culinary history and food history is sometimes a useful one. I think there are people who really are interested just in what was being cooked, and myself included. Um, 
food history, I think, is a lot broader. I think it includes the religious ideas about food, including not eating, you know, um, and fasting, and also agricultural texts, political texts, um, documents that are nutritional in in origin, agricultural. So, in designing this reader, I really tried to put um, one, at least one kind of food text in each section um, from each place. And obviously, I couldn't cover the whole world, you know, in all time from beginning to end. So I kind of plopped down in various periods. So there's, you know, Han Dynasty China, there's the Aztecs, there's um, uh, medieval Islam, you know, whereas um, I, th- I think it would be too uh, sort of overwhelming if I tried to cover absolutely everything. Yeah, well, it, and it is overwhelming anyway if for somebody just to glance at it. But as you start to read through it, it all makes sense and you see the, you know, the um, periods evolving. But um, tell me a little bit about how, well, first of all, my question is how in the world did you, it must have been a lot of, a lot of editing of choices because impossible to put everything in. But as far as a little quick chronological outline, how far back does the oldest reading date? Well, I started with the um, cuneiform texts that are Akkadian, so it's about 1500 BC. They're the oldest recipes, basically, that you could, you know, actually have ingredients and methods um, that you could call a recipe. Uh, there aren't Egyptian ones, funny enough. There are medical texts that uh, from ancient Egypt which look like recipes. They're really um, not food per se, but um, but that was, I wanted it to go as early as possible. There's, there's a lot of readings from ancient Greece and ancient Rome. There's a big section on the Middle Ages. So I thought, you know, to take in as much as I physically could, um, as would fit in a book, it's about 500 pages, 550 pages, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't actually that hard to compile. I think the, the sources, you know, I mean, if you're doing food history, you kind of know what these sources are, and you, there's some classic texts you absolutely have to include, um, and cookbooks, obviously. The um, I tried to put in as many recipes as I could. The really difficult part was actually the permissions. Uh, you mm. know, it was getting excerpts from other texts, and sometimes they're very affordable, and publishers are happy to have um, you reprint a little section of something. And sometimes they were ridiculously expensive, you know, several thousand dollars, which the publisher, you know, just couldn't make money putting things like that in. So, so in the end, the really hard part, it took about two years just to get all the permissions um, to use these sections. And then some texts, you know, like for China, there are, there's just not a whole lot translated. So getting, you know, what I could, patching it together from uh, various, sometimes old, you know, 19th century sources out of print, um, didn't, didn't always make me it was the best translation, but it was, you know, sometimes I had to sacrifice the, the newest, loveliest translation for something that we could afford. Um, and a lot of things, um, interestingly, came from Prospect Books, who, who really published, I, I think is the best publisher of historic food texts. Um, so, so in some cases, I would just, you know, pull a little section from Apicius or pull something from somewhere else that had already been published that would take, you know, your average reader would require, you know, a hundred different books, you know, and, and a fortune to buy all of them. So this one is sort of a digestible form of the whole gamut of uh, primary sources in food history. Indeed. Uh, and I, I, you were talking about sometimes the well, some of the the Chinese perhaps not the best translations, but I was impressed with the translations of many of the um, excerpts that you have because I think you did choose the some of the best translations in those excerpts. Um, well, and as a professor of history, of course, you you you, you can you picked the periods very well um, to cover. 
Yeah, and in some cases, I just translated them myself because I thought, you know, I really wanted some some good early modern Spanish recipes in there, so I just did a handful. Um, good for and you. <laughs> I did the apicius from Latin, so so yeah. it was, you know, there were some things that I just really wanted in there, and there was no reason not to just translate them myself. Absolutely, uh, that's great, and put it in your own vernacular, in, in, yeah. if you will, you know. But um, and that's interesting that um, you did say that that you really um, wanted to. In your words, ultimately, what we need is less rehashing of what we already know and new investigation of lesser-known texts across many cultures. Right. Well, you know, food history is kind of plagued with fake lore, Mm -hmm. as as our friend Andy Smith calls it. (laughs) And I think that a lot of the information really is just getting recycled and recycled. And uh, and I think we need more, uh, fewer encyclopedias. (laughs) And I know I'm guilty of that myself. And more original um, research. And I don't think that's going to happen unless a generation of students is raised on the primary sources and not on the, you know, rehashing of, of ideas ideas and texts and, and commentary. I think they just need to read the original stuff. And that's true about any field in history. I think you could say the best place to start is not with a reader or a tech, not with a um, textbook or a, you know, watered down version or overview. But to read the primary text really means you're engaging with the past directly. And it opens things to interpretation. And I have to say, I'm very excited. I actually started classes yesterday, um, my food history class, and I'm using this reader for the first time with, um, based, you know, it's undergraduate class. Um, and I think it's going to make the class a lot more dynamic because it won't be just me spoon feeding them. Oh, here is this text of um, the banquet of Trimalchio, driven, you know, taken from Petronius and describing it and saying, there, isn't that interesting? They're, they're reading it for themselves. You know, and can make right. their, form their own opinions and analyze it, and I think that's that's much more you know for any history course. I think that's ideal. Right. Well, the, I you know, for our listeners, uh, explain a little bit about the layout because I have the book sitting in my lap here in front of me. That you just give a snippet of of a lot of these primary sources, a lot of these texts, which I think makes the reader um, hungry to go back to the that primary source and read a lot more. And but then the interesting thing is, is that you you give them some study questions, some study ideas, some some questions about how how to read into these. And you even say perhaps to read the introduction to that section after you read the primary source. Tell me why you said that. Well, I think that's true of any primary source. If you read, um, you know, even if you're like pick up a Penguin novel, if you read the introduction, it kind of tells you, here's what you ought to be thinking, yeah. and, and that's what you look for. And I think it's much better to just look at it freshly and have no preformed ideas. And then if you go back to the introduction, um, and, you know, these are fairly short excerpts, so you could always look at it again. But I think I really want my readers and want my students to disagree with me. You know, that makes it more interesting if I say, oh, this, this, is, this spice is used here because it's a um, sign of wealth and social class and, and blah, 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 whatever. Then they're going to say, oh, yeah, that's right, and not go any further. But if they read it for themselves to start with, they may have a completely different idea, which might be equally legitimate, um, and then come back and say he thought it was about class. No, it's about flavor or whatever it may be, you know, if they form their own opinion. So I think that's kind of um, important for critical thinking. 
is that when you're reading a text, you're not trying to get the right answer. There is no right answer. You're trying to form um, an opinion about what it meant to those people, why they were using certain ingredients or cooking methods, or um, you know why an exotic ingredient would be used when it's you know doesn't serve any real nutritional purpose. You know, right. cloves taste lovely, but you don't need them in food. Why would people spend so much money to do that? So right. it's. So I'd like it. I'd like it open to interpretation. And the other thing that I really wanted to include in the whole text just turned out to be um, far too expensive to do is um, images, because images are just as good a source for uh, food history. But I, so I put suggestions all the way through. Of look, you know, while you're reading this, look at Broyles, um, uh, you know, Carnival in Lent, or look at an image of. Um, aristocratic dining in the Middle Ages or whenever it may be. So I hope that, that um, you know, students will pick up on those little cues I've left all over the place and just go online and find yeah. the images are f- easy to find. I thought that was a wonderful suggestion to pull up a picture and, and be looking at that as you read the text. I mean, it just, it really does give it a, another dimension. It was very, a very interesting suggestion. Um, there, um, there are, there is definitely a theme to the reader. I mean, you go, you jump from, as you say, the um, the cuneiform tab, uh, tablets, uh, Trimalchios feast, Montezuma's banquet, uh, Erasmus's manners. What what are the themes of the reader? How would you describe the themes of this reader? Well, I would say the the thing that really ties everything together is that people eat certain things because it's an expression of who they are uh, or who they want to be, um, and they make conscious decisions and obviously negotiating among a lot of different choices, uh, at least if they have the wherewithal to, to purchase you know, their food and make, make those choices. But in general, people choose things that will make their lives easier or be an expression of their ethnicity or will help them lose weight or will help them be closer to God or whatever it is. So, so the theme there is really that this is not really an an image of what people were actually eating. I mean, you can't look at a cookbook and say, oh, people were eating this. And you can't look at a text that says, do this and this, and you'll grow the best string beans. You don't know if it's prescriptive, right? It's not descriptive. But it does tell you what people's ideas were, what informed their decisions that ultimately did determine what they what they ate, and that's words. It's the actual text there that are a kind of window into the culture. So you can look at, at any culture through its art or through its music or through its architecture. And I think food is just one of those things people haven't always really thought that, that it says much. They think, oh, it's fuel. You know, people eat because they have to be fed and whatever. But, but it's a lot more complex than that. And people make choices because the food does something for them. It's an idea that either brings them com- comfort, gives them status, um, helps them be more righteous, helps, you know. So it's really, it's kind of a, a compendium of ideas about food and what might have informed people's food choices. Excellent, yeah. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's actually in some of these texts, sure, and including recipes, when we come back after a short break. Hi, I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. 
I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will, too. And I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Hi, I'm back on The Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Ken Albala, who's newest, a food historian and professor of history. His newest book is The Food History Reader, Primary Sources. And uh, Ken, you were talking about the, the themes and, and obviously um, critical thinking. So part of the learning objectives coming out of this book, um, critical thinking being Obviously, you say you want people to understand why they were eating certain foods, right? And, and what? What about ingredients? Learning about the actual food history from ingredients, we can learn some of that from these texts, right? I think so, definitely. Um, you know, I think that's one of the best ways to start food history and introduce people to it. Is say, where did these ingredients come from? How did they get? to where they're used today, and it's something that people are always surprised by. You know, what, you know, chili peppers weren't, and tomatoes weren't in Italy before, you know, the really the 18th centuries, when the late 17th centuries when they show up in recipes. So it kind of surprises people to know, learn the botanical origins of the foods that they eat, and, and historically why they're mixed up really is, is a great introduction to history. What might sound sort of boring, you know, oh gosh, you know, here's the slave trade, and here's, well, it's, it's all about sugar, you know, so there's... There's, there are very complex stories embedded in where ingredients go and how they're processed and who does the labor and who's buying it and who's consuming it and why. Because, I, I mean, if, you know, especially when you get to the, the period of globalization, 17th, 18th century, most of the things that they're trading are completely superfluous. They're not nutritional. <laughs> they're coffee, tea, sugar, tobacco, spices, and things that you know, people want and desire, but they're not necessary, and they change the whole world. And I think it's a much better way to learn, you know, here's, here are the themes of globalization, but if you learn it through sugar and, and tobacco, it's, it's far more enlivened, I think. Yes, yeah. Um, and I uh, mentioned that we would talk um, about recipes, um, but a, a little note about um, gastronomic literature. <laughs> if we, I was surprised. Did you, do you have any, did anything surprise you that you ended up using that you were surprised about in, in putting these texts together? together? Well, the hardest section, believe it or not, was the modern one because mm. there was so much I really wanted in there that just cost too much that, that, and fascinating literature that I, that I don't think, know whether you'd consider it gastronomic per se, but um, like, for example, I wanted, I don't know whether it made it in now, I'm thinking about it, I wanted a section from Ray Kroc, who's... Yes, you the, did. yes the, it did make it in. Yes. It did make it in. Yes, Wonderful. Yes, yes. Okay, I don't remember exactly. Um, I think I wanted Frances Moore Lappay in there. I think I wanted... She's in, um, yeah. Um, I wanted something from um, Silent Spring because it's, you know, there's a section on apples and why they look very bright and shiny. I mean, it was sort of one of those wake-up moments in history where people suddenly said, oh, it might look very nice, but it's got 
poisons and the and pesticides in it. So so that was the hardest section to really put together. And ultimately, what went in there was kind of odd. Um, James Beard got in there, I think, or no, Craig Claiborne no, got Claiborne. in there, right. um, and a selection of Maria Gentile, who I just I just like her. She's the first Italian American cookbook, really. And and people will probably look at that and say, well, what is this <laughs> supposed to illustrate? Well, it's, it's immigration, and it's you know it's the it's how a food that was un, completely unknown foods uh, cuisine that was unknown suddenly becomes mainstream, and of course it's you know everyone eats Italian food now. So so the themes might not be the, the new section. You could have done a whole reader just on the 20th century, really, and um, and so the things that actually got in there in the end seem to be sort of. Um, not random, but but they're they're odd and interesting. Uh, Wilbur Atwater got in there, who was you know sort of the man behind our idea of food as fuel and and the reductionism of calories and new, what we call you know nutritionism today. Really, really influential, but I don't think he's a household name at all. No, uh, right. I I I thought that the you know the beginning and the end were were beautiful, starting with the cuneiform tablets, um, and then ending with the slow food manifesto. I mean, I, think, I thought that was. That was pretty brilliant. I mean, sort of taking us, you know, full circle back again to, you know, to what what is important about eating. <laughs> exactly the idea. <laughs> yeah. right. You know, I always thought that uh, Carlo Petrini wrote it. He didn't. <laughs> uh, you know, and, you know, he's the, the the driving force right. behind the whole movement. But someone else wrote that manifesto, and it looks very much like the Communist Manifesto. I don't know yes, whether yes. you know Americans know the slow food roots are in the Communist Party. Yep, you, and you got me on that too. I got to tell you, I read it, and I said, "Wait a minute, where's Carlo's name?" Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, things that surprised me, and that might surprise readers, um, that are included because what what else was written? But there are sections from the Bible that are in there. There's Beowulf. Um, let me see what else surprised me. I, th- I guess the the sections on China and India to me were were of course newer because I think we as a Western culture we know so little about the beginnings of those cuisines. Right. And and I really put in stuff um I didn't know any of those sources before I started compiling the whole thing. And some of them were so strange and compelling. Um the the I the there's a E Li, I guess is how you say it in the Chinese section it was about rituals and what uh, a troop of archers should do when they show up at the house of a, a lord or you know landowner and it's this very strange ritual of facing west and pouring a drink and thanking the the host and and it's you know remarkably ritualized so it might not might not be clear like what the themes are looking at that they're in the course as i teach it um there's there's also a really fascinating horse sacrifice section from the uh, from an ancient Aryan Indian text which you know makes no sense if you think how these people are <laughs> to become vegetarians as brahmins what why do they start off as you know sacrificing a horse so so those are um, they're meant to be shocking and and you know strange um, I really wish I could have put a recipe in for every single section you know some of these mm-hmm. cultures just don't have cookbooks per se as we think of them but I think for everywhere I could find I put in at least five or six recipes, um, and they, they um, courses I'm teaching it in Boston uh, now, um, electronically, uh, we're going to cook them all. So I think they will all, I don't know what they're going to taste like, but they will be, I think, fun. And that's something that I think people miss out when they sit in a you know, classroom or in, in their office and just read things and, and interpret them, is I think you really have to taste the food also to get a sense of what people's aesthetic values were in the past 
and what excited them. It's sort of like, you know, if you're studying music, you want to hear what it sounds like on period instruments. You want to see the, the techniques that went into making a Rembrandt painting. And I think it's the same thing with food, is that the action of physically cooking it um, uh, as close as you possibly can, you know, an original period um, um, fuel sources and, and pots and things. Uh, but tasting it, I think, is a way of really kind of uh, um, apprehending the past in the same way that you would, you know, go to an exotic restaurant and say, oh, here's this Thai food, and now I sort of get a sense of this culture from the way things taste. Well, the past is, is another great place to travel in that respect, you know, and and I think that a lot of these flavors, they sound sort of weird when you put them together, but they really, really work. Um, to give you an example, out of the uh, Apicius text, there's one um, recipe that includes, that it's pork, it's based, you know, like on the pork shoulder is what I usually use, and it includes apricots and vinegar and honey and fish sauce, what they, garum, which mm-hmm. was sort of the, the source of salt on everything, and um, a whole slew of flavors which we would think might not go together, but when you put them all together, you, it tastes like a really good sort of barbecue sauce. You know, it's sweet and sour and salty and spicy. There's pepper in it, too, at the same time, so that you really can't appreciate those things unless you actually taste them. So, so there's a lot of recipes in there, and, and obviously you can you know, use the recipes and interpret them in other ways, but, I, but I'm, I would encourage people to actually cook from it as well. Absolutely. I, mean, there are, um, I and, and a group of us um, through the culinary historians have attempted always to cook um, from old texts or whatever program we're presenting. And once you get past, of course, the lack of, of amounts and, and specific directions, I mean, you, yeah. can, you can really cook these recipes. And they are, you know, despite what some people might think, that uh, it was, you know, cruder times without sophisticated cooking wrong absolutely wrong. Oh, exactly. these are all very sophisticated dishes and yeah and i find delicious. when people you know make a, a recipe from the past and it doesn't taste good they've usually fudged it mm-hmm. they've done something and they said oh that won't taste good so i'll throw in this instead or i'll do this and ignore the instructions and i have to say when i follow old recipes and i don't veer from the instructions it always works it, it you know it, it's it's um or if something goes wrong it's because i haven't understood the directions and looked at them carefully enough but really you know people would not write down a recipe if it didn't work i I think that's you know yeah, I think just a rule right. in yeah. food history. Yeah, I think I think we might learn something from these old texts too, and start adopting some of their instructions. I think the instructions are more um, a story from these rather than now we have you know this the dump and stir thing one two three four and yeah. you know you're done. And even the measurements. I, the one thing I saw, and I'm trying to remember now who, what, where did I see it. It was on put in an onion about the size of four fingers. Well, now, how how wonderfully descriptive is that? Right? <laughs> yeah. A medium onion yeah. or a large onion? Well, it depends what market you shopped at, you know. <laughs> That's right. And my favorite is, is the cooking time. Sometimes they will say, two, cook this for two paternosters. Okay. A paternoster <laughs> is exactly 30 seconds. If you say it out in Latin, two paternosters is one minute. Yeah. So you're put, you know, searing something for a minute. And I think, you know, the other thing, it was funny you mentioned this, that there are techniques and combinations of food that we could actually use today. Um, there's, there's, for example, there's a technique in the Middle Ages which seems really counterintuitive, but to roast something, is food is often parboiled. In other words, they'll, they'll put it in boiling water, take it out, and you think, oh, no, you're losing all the flavor or whatever. But it actually firms the meat up, and so it will fit on a spit without falling off. And
and it prevents the fat from just sort of dripping and falling into the fire. It's, it, it doesn't sound like it would work because it's a completely unmodern technique, but it does actually really nicely. I, I'm so um, glad you mentioned that because I was even amazed, even things like eggplants, um, you know, the power board, they would plop the whole thing in, in boiling water. Um, so many things they would parboil. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty standard technique. Um, and, you know, and combinations and flavors that I, I think, you know, there are, there are a handful of chefs who are trying to revive old flavors, or they at least pretend that they are. Mm-hmm. Um, I won't name any names, but there's a, there's a, a golden apple, which um, a chef in London made um, out of the form of curry, which is a medieval cookbook, and he basically just did whatever he wanted and called it that. And I thought, why did you miss a great opportunity to, because the original recipe is great. It's, it's fantastic. It's a fake apple made out of pork that's ground up into a meatball and then gilded, so it looks like this golden apple. But, but like, why not do it as it was originally? Because then you, you know, um, I, don't, I don't see the point in faking it, I guess. That's, that's, yeah. that's what I mean. But, or create but your are. own thing and don't, and don't adopt a, you know, another name, a, a previous name, you know, create something brand new. Yeah, yeah, or don't claim that it's this is a historic right. recipe and this is what they were eating. Um, you know, exactly. invent something new and call it something new. But, well, yeah. this is to me is a delight, and I plan to share it with so many people, including my readers who ask questions. It puts it all in one place, and then you know you give a wonderful bibliography, and and when you like a section of something that perhaps you weren't introduced to before, I, I think it opens the door for readers to go and and research that source and get more and read it. And I thank you so much for putting it all under one cover. It's really not all that big. It's not, I mean, it's, it's a very manageable book and it, it's something that is not at all intimidating to people who might think, Oh my God, I'll never get through all these texts. It's, it's a very good read. <laughs> I would say. Thank you. Oh, that's, that's, that's me. <laughs> and you know, it, it offers instructive ways to think about our food and our food systems. And, indeed how they've been shaped by historical forces. Ken Albala, I thank you so much for sharing your time and I look forward to more things coming from you. And I know you 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 jump into all kinds of fields and it's always interesting to to see what you're gonna come up with next. Thank <laughs> so, you so much for having me. You're welcome. And thanks for listening. This again has been a taste of the past and I'm your host, Linda Palaccio on Heritage Radio Network Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.